Hello, everyone. This is Michael Govier from the Cinema 9 Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 265, The Fugitive Movie Review. Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We're recording a day early this week. Uh, we, we've got another film celebrating a major milestone anniversary. We're going to go back 30 years to 1993 with a review of the Harrison Ford film, The Fugitive. But before we get to the film, Derek, what pop culture have you been able to take part in this week, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, uh, unfortunately, no documentaries. I'm in a little bit of a dry spell in the documentary mm-hmm. department, so I'll, I'll remedy that over the next few weeks. I'll find something to watch, if for no other reason than just so that you can play the song. I love playing the uh, song, yes. I know you do. But, uh, no, I had a chance to watch a few movies, uh, a couple of brand new ones. Uh, one super classic that I know you'll love, so I'll, oh. I'll save that one for the end. Please do. Um, and, and as I mentioned on some of the previous shows, I've been uh, trying to get back into um, reading or, or at least audiobooks mm-hmm. and uh, I'm currently reading a, a really great series uh, called Caverns and Creatures by an a- author named uh, Robert Bevan and it's I think there's like 15 books in the series they're very short the audiobooks are only about eight hours a pop so I imagine the books are probably around 200 pages and the premise is it's a bunch of like wisecracking uh, you know gamers very much like my gaming group who uh, love to tell dirty jokes and not really pay attention to the game and inevitably they become their characters against their will and so they're in the game being the wisecracking gamers and trying to use the game mechanics to uh to to have a good time with uh but they realize the dangers of the, of the game world are real to their characters to them and uh if you're into D, uh this this series really it, it pokes fun at it in all the best ways and if you know how the game works a lot of what the characters in the book do uh in the stories they exploit the rules in the most hilarious ways. And the guys are just gross. Like they're, they're gross, but funny. It's, it's that old thing, you know, the real money's in and fart jokes. This one's full of and fart jokes. So, uh, you know, if, if that's the kind of thing you like, check out this creature, the creatures and caverns series. So hold on a second. Let me get yes. this right. So what you're saying is that you and your buddies, when you get together to play role playing games, you like to tell dirty jokes. Will you share one with us? Maybe. Uh, well, uh, or at we'll least on get, a future show, will you bring? Yeah, one? as you say, we'll have to get the sensors all warmed up because yeah. there'll be a lot of bleeps. Man, so so you guys like to like play Dungeons and Dragons and tell dirty jokes? Uh, well, it's more just the dark, uh, dark and dirty humor that comes out of the situations. But no. that, I'm sure that happens with any social circle with people that you are very good friends with and have been friends with for a long time. It doesn't matter if you're playing a game or out at the bar or at a restaurant or just sitting in someone's backyard having some some cigars like whatever you're going to inevitably, you know, have a good time with it. So, so this book, of, this book captures that very nicely. Right. So it's kind of like okay, so I'm 
in this gold dragon. And Derek walks in. Something like that. Yeah, that that's almost <laughs> verbatim what, what happened in some of these chapters. Yeah. Here no, you go. It's, oh, it's, it's quite funny. Awesome. I can't uh, wait. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, on to some movies. <laughs> so I'll, I'll start new and work my way backwards. So we watched the brand new release just came out on uh, home streaming. The, the latest superhero movie from DC, The Flash. Uh, it got terrible reviews. And as a comic book movie fan, I felt that I wanted to watch it, that I needed to watch it. And my wife and I sat down to watch it, not really knowing much about it, because as I've mentioned before, we try not to pay attention to trailers and and the the preamble of what all these movies are going to entail. And we enjoyed it. I mean, it wasn't Shakespeare by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't the best superhero movie I've ever seen, not even close. But I didn't feel that it was the worst one out there. And the way that the reviews were going on and on when this came out a couple months back, you would have thought that this was the biggest stinker going. There was a lot to like about it. It was like it was like the Ishtar of comic book movies. Um, Well, I I don't know if that's an apt analogy, but uh, because Ishtar was so good, you know, it was uh, it did not. This did not get a lot of good reviews, but uh, I I was listening to a podcast this week now that I'd had a chance to see the movie where some of the reviewers were talking about it. And they basically said the more you knew about this movie going into it, the less likely you were going to enjoy it because it relied so much on special appearances from actors and performers and characters that you wouldn't expect. And apparently the biggest ones were all in the trailer. They were all just totally spoiled at things like Comic-Con and and uh, through the press kits. That's why you don't watch trailers, people. The movies are way better when you don't know that you know, special guest stars are going to pop up halfway through and have you know substantial roles in these films. But anyway, I enjoyed The Flash, uh, despite... Ezra Miller, who is the the main lead in The Flash, he actually plays the character of The Flash. He had a lot of shenanigans going on off screen, which I think also probably hurt the movie a little bit. But I liked it. It was what it was. And I got to watch it on the streamer, so I didn't have to pay for it. So nice. Yeah, that was the first one. Uh, then we watched a movie just yesterday uh, starring Idris Alba uh, and um, uh, what's his name? Charlto Copley. He was the guy from the A-Team reboot that played Howlin' Mad Murdoch. He was in District 9. He's the main guy from District 9, South African guy. Okay. So this movie, The Beast, takes place in South Africa where Idris Alba takes his two young daughters uh, to South Africa to go on safari and they meet up with their their friend, the guy from District 9. And uh, they run into poachers and the poachers are shooting lions. And then, of course, the lions start attacking the people. And then it's like this, oh, my God, are they going to survive in the jungle kind of movie? Again, it was what it was. It was okay. Uh, it wasn't super awesome, but you know, Idris Elba is easy on the eyes, and and it had some neat action sequences. I, I would probably say pass on this one. It's called Beast. Uh, I think we probably watched it on Crave, if I remember correctly. Anyway, that one just came out last year. Then I'm going way back to the year 2000. Chris, you may have seen this one, probably not, but you may actually have heard of it. I'm, I'm, I'm more hung up on your idea of going way back to the year 2000. Wait, oh, Doesn't well, seem ex- all that far back yeah. to me. But, well, you know, it, and this movie's called Wonder Boys. It stars Michael Douglas and Tobey Maguire. It's also got uh, big roles for Robert Downey Jr., Katie Holmes, Francis McDormand. Rip Torn is in it in a, a couple of cameo uh, things. Um, uh, anyway, it's a story about uh, Michael Douglas, who is a creative writing teacher at a college. And Tobey Maguire is this you know quiet student with promise. And the story takes place over, I think it's one night where uh, just a whole lot of shenanigans happen. And this this has been author who's now a teacher, uh, you know, has, has his life turned upside down by a series of events. 
it, it got some pretty reasonable praise when it came out. I remember watching it when it first came out on, on video and thinking, eh, it was just okay. And it happened to be on a couple of weeks ago. I recorded it. I had a chance to finally watch it again. And my feeling was sort of the same. It was just okay. But seeing some of these guys like Tobey Maguire, Robert Downey Jr., who have since the year 2000 had some pretty big movies, uh, these guys, you know, to, to see them sort of as younger men where you could definitely see the promise that these actors would become was kind of kind of fun to go back and watch that. So, again, that one's not really necessarily a, a thumbs up recommendation, but uh, if you have a chance to to see it, it's it's not terrible. So Wonder Boys from 2000. Mm-hmm. And then last but not least, we're going way back 1982, right Ooh. in your Ooh, I like spot. I like where this is going. 48 Hours. Oh, wow. Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte, the oh, original. That Eddie Murphy's so on good. screen, big screen debut yep. in 48 Hours. I hadn't seen this movie in probably 10 years or more, probably closer to 20. And it's great. I mean, it's it is amazing. dated. Don't get me wrong. It is very dated. Mm-hmm. Um, but Eddie Murphy, like, you cannot deny how great this guy was in this movie. Like, there was no doubt after watching this movie for the first time, people didn't just say, this kid's going to be the greatest movie star we're going to see in the next decade. And he totally was. This movie is so good. Uh, even Nick Nolte, who I don't usually like, he was good in the kind of role that he was playing. And um, no, I enjoyed it. I, like I said, I hadn't seen it in a long time. Uh, a lot more violent than I remembered it. A lot more. It's not a comedy. I think that's no, the thing. It, like you think yeah. of it like, oh, it's a comedy. It's not. It's in fact, I would think it's one of the best cop movies ever made. It's It ranks up there. It's it's but it, yeah it's violent. There's a lot going on. There's it's got like a really good plot and lots of good characters. Uh, James Remar, oh my god, he's a bad guy in that. He's a great villain. Like he he's just like scary in that movie. He's so good. Oh man, that's yeah, a good no, one. It was uh, yeah, it was uh, it was surprising uh, how how I guess not really how much I misremembered it because I really didn't remember a lot of the details. But to your point, I was expecting it to be more of a comedy more. I expected it to be more like lethal weapon is more where I was expecting to be where it was action. But it was sort of like the characters maybe not being as serious or taking themselves as seriously, like where you get a lot of humorous parts Mm -hmm. out of it, where it's like, uh, you know, you hear it talked about as like, oh, it's the first buddy cop movie. Well, Eddie Murphy's not a cop and they're not buddies. They are constantly at each other's throats. And so I think that the line is even like, we're not partners. We ain't friends. Yeah. They even say that. Right. Yeah. There's a line in the movie that's, uh, that talks about that. And, uh, no, it was good though. It was good for all the right reasons. And the things that I, some of the assumptions I had going into it that were, um, incorrect, it didn't it didn't matter that I was incorrect. It was probably better that they were incorrect. Like the fact that it wasn't as funny as I remembered it. It was more violent than I remembered it. It was more cop like a cop movie than I remembered. Yeah. All 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 pluses in the in the in the checklist. So uh, if you have a chance to go back and watch 48 Hours with Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, it's a great one. Give it a chance. And now I'm going to keep my eyes out for another 48 Hours, which I did. Re- I've seen it once. So now that I just watched it, it wasn't very one, good. It wasn't well, I, just that's stick what with I the remember. original. Yeah. Uh, but if I see it or I can find it in the streamer, I might make a point of trying to watch it in the next couple of weeks. So yeah. anyway, those were uh, those were my highlights of the week. OK, so in case my crotchety old man ways don't make this obvious enough, Derek, I actually realized something this week. I'm getting old, man. 
So no, that's <laughs> yeah, true. So so my my oldest son is on his way to high school in the fall. He recently graduated from grade eight, and they had this grad ceremony. Like super proud dad here, by the way. My son won several awards academic and social. I'm so proud of them. But anyway, so after the ceremony, they have this graduation dance and the parents, we weren't allowed to go in, right? Only the kids. So my, my, my son goes to this dance with his class and I pick him up afterward. And so I say to him, I was like, well, how was the dance? Did they play Stairway to Heaven? And he's like, no. Did and he I'm, know what that was? And I go, I go, why didn't they play it? And he goes, because it's not 1984. Oh, good answer. Man, my son be throwing shade on me, man. That's what the kids say, isn't it? Yeah. Throwing yep. shade. Yes. So. And rightly and, so, man. Oh, man, I got it. Uh, another reason I get shade thrown on me, I think, is, is for this. Here's your dad joke of the week. You know, Derek, I, I figured since we're reviewing The Fugitive, that it would only be fitting that I do a fugitive dad joke this week. Okay. Are you ready? Uh, I, I'm as ready as I'm going to be. Okay. So, Derek, did you hear that the police are searching for a fugitive chef who killed a customer after arguing about spices? No. The police say it's just a matter of time. Oh, man. Talk about salt in the wounds, man. <laughs> Bob Ross, the joy of painting. No, it looks stupid. <laughs> It's, it's actually mesmerizing. Or perhaps inhale some substances. Right. They might find this painting show 10 times better than someone who is, you know, in complete control of their faculties. Oh, there's a little happy accident. We got a little bit of brown there. Let's just make it into a tree. Stoner college students that watch it. They're like, oh my God, this is the so best good. thing to watch when you're high. I can't believe he just made a mountain. If I'm in the right mood and I see it comes on cable, I'm going to sit and watch it. We're going to use some Van Dyke brown and a little bit of Prussian blue. So full disclosure, mm-hmm. uh... So, Derek, so we have spent a good portion of season eight on the podcast around here. We're looking at movies celebrating major milestone anniversaries. So this week, uh, you wanted to go back and review a film celebrating 30 years since its release back in 1993. And that's the Harrison Ford thriller, The Fugitive. So maybe you can kind of start us off by telling us, you know, why you wanted to go back and, and watch and review this movie. Sure. Well, I wanted to, first of all, make sure that the movie that we were reviewing was something that most people have already seen that 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 to me is always um a fun show to listen to is if you don't have to go back and watch the movie in order to understand what they're talking about you're more likely to listen to the episode so honestly i I want people to listen i hope they're listening i hope they enjoy the show and when we pick some occasional out of left field movies maybe because they were really old or they were more independent films i'm i'm realistic i know people are just going to skip those episodes so i wanted to get one that i knew people have seen that people liked that maybe people already know a little bit of the background or the trivia and uh, hopefully we can add some new spice to it or um or we can bring a new perspective to it or maybe if they just haven't seen it in a while we can remind them about you know the things they enjoy about this movie uh this is one of those movies that i can say i've probably seen more than 40 times less than 50 times and uh, anytime it comes on, if it's on cable, even if it's on stupid AMC where it's they cut all the swears and stuff and it's hard, difficult to watch, I'll still watch it. There's just so much to like about this movie. There's there's so many good sequences that and I'm sure we'll get into all of this. The the way the movie is, it, the pacing is done, the way that the 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 editing is done, the way that the the whole 
like it's a detective story, right? You're trying to find who killed his wife. So it's like you're trying to get all the clues. They come together in a way that makes sense. But it's an action movie. It's like a thriller. And Harrison Ford, I mean, Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford. We were joking about this as we were watching it. We're like, he really, you know, in his best movies, he pretty much plays the same character every time. And this is Harrison Ford playing a combination of Han Solo and Indiana Jones and all the other, you know, the president on Air Force One. It's it's all the same. It's it's. It, but that's Harrison Ford. That's, that's why you buy a ticket. So lots to like about this movie. So I thought, you know what? Let's go back. Let's watch it uh, yet again. And let's have a discussion about it. And honestly, I, I assume you've seen it, but I don't know how long it's been since you've seen it. So maybe it was an opportunity for you to revisit it for the first time in a long time. Maybe you've watched it recently. I don't know. What, what was your feeling? So I have, I have a lot to contribute to this. Okay, the, the, well, the first thing I want to say is that I disagree with you a little bit, and we're going to circle back to this in a bit, if yeah. we can, is I don't, I, I, I feel like Harrison Ford isn't just playing the same thing over and over again. But anyway, we'll get back to that. I want to first of all, I, I felt it was important to go back and take a look at the box office from that year. I wanted to go back and think, like, where did it, where did The Fugitive kind of, you know, fall in 93? It was a huge success. Like it, oh, critically critical success, financial success. Yeah, absolutely. It so it took in just over one hundred and seventy six million dollars, uh, which was good enough for second place at the box office that year. There was a little movie that finished ahead of it in first with double that amount in box office sales. A little movie called Jurassic Park. It took in three hundred and forty million dollars. So it like doubled it. Great. But that was a flash in the pan. Nobody's talked yeah, about it since ninety. Exactly. Um so <laughs> rounding out the the top ten. Um so Jurassic Park was one, Fugitive Two, The Firm was third, followed up by Sleepless in Seattle, Mrs. Doubtfire. Wow. Indecent Proposal was number six. In the Line of Fire, Aladdin was eight, Cliffhanger nine, and A Few Good Men was 10. So it's quite a few good movies. Groundhog yeah. Dave just outside of the top 10. So was Dave. So The Fugitive was made on a budget of $44 million. So it did very well. So that yes. was good. And like you mentioned, it was a critical success too. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards. It took home yeah. one which was Best Supporting Actor for Tommy Lee Jones, but it was also nominated for Best Picture. Best Picture, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, it was nominated for a few. Um, it was up against Schindler's List and In the Name of the Father, The Piano, and The Remains of the Day. It wasn't a strong, that's not a strong it, slate. It wasn't going to be Schindler's List. No. Like, who are we kidding? No, exactly. Right place, right time, you know, a mo kind of movie. Like, you knew that was going to be an awards darling. Like, no one's, no one's voting for anything other than the Holocaust movie, like... And Tommy Lee Jones, who we'll come back to in a bit, but I mean, even him winning Best Supporting Actor wasn't the strongest slate of actors that year. He was up against uh, Leo DiCaprio for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Ralph Fiennes was in Schindler's List. John Malkovich in The Line of Fire and Pete Postlewaite in The, in the Name of the Father. So it wasn't like a super strong. Yeah, that wasn't a strong. You know, I mean, Tommy Jones was good in it. I thought he was good. So this movie was obviously based on a TV series. That ran from 1963 to 1967, 120 episodes of the TV series. I think one of the early challenges that producers of this film had was, how do you get 120 episodes of content whittled down to a two-hour movie? Yeah. And it was obviously a challenge because they had at least 25 screenplays written. It took five years to get a final draft of this script in place. But a couple pieces of trivia that I wanted to bring up. This one is the only movie in history that's based on a TV series that was nominated for Best Picture. 
So that's just an interesting piece of trivia. I, I'd be shocked if this is the last one, though, given well, the yeah, way movies yeah. are going now. I think we're going to eventually get there. Yeah, uh, regrettably, I think we're and this, I think, is a, the the exception to the rule where an, a, a TV series turned into a movie. They usually suck. I mean, this one, I think, is fantastic. And we'll talk about all the reasons why. But well, I'm, I'm holding out for the Love Boat movie and the Happy Days movie. So we'll have to see. They can both make it uh, to, you know, to be nominated for Best Picture, I'm sure. Sure. And the thing with the other piece of trivia was the TV series, you know, the final episode where Richard Kimball finally catches the one-armed man, it drew 78 million viewers. Wow. Which made it the most watched TV finale in history until it was beaten by MASH in 1983. Hmm. 105 million people watched the MASH finale. You think about that, that's pretty amazing. That it was almost half the population of the United States at the time. It's just amazing. But Crazy. but again, Fugitive got 78 million back in 1967, which is an incredible thing in itself if you think about it. Now, so, Chris, they also, I don't know if you're aware, but yep. they tried to reboot this TV series in t the year 2000. They, they gave it, it only lasted one season. Oh, I did not know and that. And it, it had uh, actor Tim Daly as Dr. Richard Kimball. And the guy who played... Uh, he was uh, from Wings, right? Yeah. And yeah. the guy who played uh, Bubba from uh, Forrest Gump, Michael T. Williamson, he mm -hmm. played Gerard. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, it ran, it just ran the one season. It, uh, I, I remember watching the first one and going, meh. Because the movie was such a big hit, and it was this wasn't that many years after, so I felt I think they felt they could build on that. Uh, it unfortunately didn't go anywhere. So I, I have another amazing fact for you. All right, fire away to this movie. I re I realized something this week when I was watching it. I had never seen it before. Really? Yeah. So I want to say, when I was back in university, I watched this movie with my roommates. And I, I watched the beginning. I, I had definitely seen the opening and the train crash. I saw yeah. all the way up to when he jumps off the side of the dam. But that was it. And, and, and I got thinking, I'm like, I couldn't remember the reason why, but we stopped watching the movie. I'm, so I'd never seen the rest of it. I mean, we were in university, so we're probably going to a keg party or something like that. I don't know. But uh, but I I had never seen this movie other than that opening part. So it was I was like, oh, my gosh this is really good. <laughs> like it was, it was great to watch it for the first time, you know, after all these years, the one thing that stood out to me was practical effects versus I CGI. knew you were going to say oh that. My God, I knew man. you were going to say that. And if I this, agree. If this movie was made today, it would just be chock full of CGI. Oh, of course. But back in 93, it wasn't possible to do. They were just developing the CGI for Jurassic Park at the time. And that was yep. to create dinosaurs, not like, sets and crashes and stuff like that so all of the special effects in the movie are practical and they look great like fantastic great and, and you know me this is a hill i'm willing to die on mm -hmm. practical special effects are so much better than the fake cgi crap now oh my god yeah it was pretty spectacular and i think that um like again, my wife and I just watched this together this week, and we we both commented on that. She actually mentioned it before I could even bring it up, just how great the practical effects looked. But it wasn't just that it was practical effects; it, that it was full scale practical effects. It wasn't a model train that got crashed. It no. was a full real life bus and train crashing together, and I think that says something as well because uh, you know we learned from things like Star Wars where. You know, the part of movie magic is figuring out ways to do things, you know, in a more simplified way. And you could have, I don't want to say very easily, but you could have 
tried to recreate that scene using models to try and save money, but they clearly opted to just say, screw it, we're doing it. And, uh, and it looks fantastic. There's even a couple of shots like aerial shots early where that where clearly like a helicopter is flying over the crash scene. And even just that in and of itself looked amazing, uh, just to see it all from above. It's just, it was so good. Uh, like the cinematographer was nominated for an Oscar for this. And it's like, there's, it's clear that there's a reason why that happened. Well, you mentioned, yeah, the, the train scene where it crashes the bus. They did it in one take, obviously. They got yeah. a train, they got a bus. 27 cameras were set up so they could get it from every possible angle. But like I say, they just did it once and then just used the footage. And the wreckage is still there. It was in North Carolina. It's a tourist attraction now. Wow. They've, they've left it in place. I didn't and, know that. That's awesome. And also the scene that got me was on the edge of the dam. It's Harrison Ford standing on the edge of the dam. He's got a wire attached to his back, holding him in place, right? So he doesn't fall. But he's really standing on the edge. And again, if they made this today, it'd just be like some CGI waterfall in front of him. Yeah. Like it's so much better like this. So so that was well, the, I, the one thing that stood out to me. Yeah, and I think that the you get a better performance from the actor, I would think. It's, it's still terrifying. You know, if they're still yeah. there, like you could really lean on it, which is not to diminish the capacity of, of today's actors or even the actors back then. But I got to think as a performer, it's a lot easier to do the scene as a character on the edge of a dam. If you're really on the edge of a dam, than it would be to be like, OK, see this green screen in post. We're going to make it look like this. So act like you're afraid of falling 500 feet into the rushing water. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, uh, we can try. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, nothing to take away from the actors now. It just, uh, the whole thing just looks so much better, too. Like, to me, CGI, I can still tell. It just yeah. doesn't quite look real. So, let's talk a little bit about the cast. We always like to do this with these films. So, Harrison Ford. So, you were talking before about, about him. I felt that Harrison Ford had this, this ability to make you forget his previous characters. And, and I know that like, that's an actor's job. I get it. Sure. But I mean, come on. When you played Han Solo in Indiana Jones, it, that's that's a real challenge to, to make an audience forget that. You know what I mean? Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, I don't I didn't watch this and think, oh, that's Indiana Jones out there. But at the same time, that, and that's a tribute to Harrison Ford, I think. For sure. But I I did feel that. Like I, because we had this discussion, I said, "Do you think that you know? Would we argue this is one of his his better or possibly even his best performance?" And I asked a couple of people, and everyone sort of went, well, "He sort of just always plays that sort of lovable grouch, uh, especially as he's been getting older, and you know that's sort of his thing." And I was like, oh, "Yeah, you know, the more they started to talk about it, the more they see, the more they convinced me that you know a lot of his performances. I'm not saying they're not good, but I I just don't really feel there's." a huge range. But I will say the exception of that is the the TV show Shrinking that we both just watched this year. I felt that he was very different in that than he's been in anything I'd seen. Well, that's where he plays the old grouch. Yeah. You know, really. I think, I think his, really I think his best it, performance yeah. was Witness. I really do. But well, I mean, that's the only one he got nominated for. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> he yeah. was so good at that. But like the thing is, like Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher both got typecast by Star Wars, but Harrison Ford didn't. You know, yeah. and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, that he went on. I tell you, when this guy was in his prime, like when he was at the top of his game between 77 and like the mid 90s, there was maybe no better actor in Hollywood history that had a run like he did. 
Mm-hmm. You think about yeah, the, no kidding. The Star Wars trilogy, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Witness, like we mentioned, he was in Blade Runner. Blade Runner. Yes. Like, man, I'm like, I never do I watch a movie of his and I think, hey, that's Han Solo. You know, like, and, and it's, it's, it's remarkable that he escaped that typecasting. I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's, no, and the thing is, it's not like he's a chameleon. You know, he's not like Jared Leto who looks like different in every single part he does. He's just Harrison Ford. But I mean, just amazing in all these iconic roles. So he is probably one of my favorite actors of all time. Top five for sure. I think. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, you have that sort of uh, uh, discussion at the bar where you're like, if you were stuck on a desert Island and can only bring the movies of your three favorite actors with you for the rest of eternity, who would it be? And you, don't go into detail about how your DVD player would continue to work on this desert island. You just say, I want, and Harrison Ford is inevitably someone's number one yeah. pick. Like he's just, his be. body of work is just yeah. so entertaining, so rewatchable, so enjoyable uh, that it's, it's really, it's really hard to not put him near the top of that kind of a conversation. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the cast, Tommy Lee Jones, we'll, we'll move on to him. He got started a bit later as an actor. He was 34 years old when he played Doolittle Lynn in Coal Miner's Daughter. That was literally his first movie. Um, he was really good at this, obviously. He won Best Supporting Actor. We mentioned that. I don't even think this is the best performance of his career. Remember how uh, a couple of shows back, I think it was when we did um, This Is The End. And mm-hmm. I mentioned how I used to always get tipped off to good movies when I would read Entertainment Weekly. Yes. So back in 2007... Um, Entertainment Weekly mentioned this movie called In the Valley of Ella. I'd never heard of it. I'm like, what the hell is this? I don't know that. And it gave it a grade of A, so I watched it. It was unbelievably amazing. Tommy Lee Jones was incredible. Best acting performance of his career, I think. He was also good in No Country for Old Men, too. He was really Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say, uh, uh, and that, that was the conversation I had with some people this week when I said, do you think... You know, that we talked about this movie and they said, oh, well, Tommy, G. Jones, Tommy Lee Jones wants an Oscar. It's definitely the best he's ever been. And I said, well, he, it's definitely up there. But I said, I think he was pretty damn good in No Country for Old Men, although he didn't probably have as much screen time. Uh, I, I definitely think that's certainly in the conversation of his top three best performances. Even though and even though it was kind of like a popcorn movie, when he did Men in Black, like he brought it. Like, yeah. he, he doesn't dial it in. Like he brings it, man. He, but he's even a good when. Actor. Even when he was in um, the Steven Seagal movie Under Siege, he was mm-hmm. the bad guy. Like he sort of hams it up, but you can tell he does it in a way that it's it's fun, but it's and it, it like it's over the top, but not super over the top. Like you still believe that he's a villain, and it's sort of a tough line to tread given given his age and who he is and how he looks and how he performs. But uh, yeah, I wanted to mention Celia Ward. She played his his wife, mm-hmm. so I didn't know who she was. I didn't, I didn't recognize her from anything. She did a lot of TV. But my God, she is one of the most beautiful human beings I think I've ever seen in my entire life. I wonder why she didn't do more. She didn't really do a whole lot, did she? Uh, TV. She did a lot of TV. I know she was in, um, oh, I want to say the show was called Sisters, but that may not be right. Oh, I think that might be right. Yeah. yeah. Then I know she was in one or two seasons of House as as his like ex-wife. So she was in that for a bit. And then I know she was on, I want to say it was CSI New York for a couple of seasons. So, I mean, she oh, works some steadily. More TV, and it, yeah. A lot of TV, yeah. TV that I've Again, never I, seen. I'd have to look up her IMDb to know for sure. Yeah. And and don't quote me. I mean, I don't know if those are all accurate shout outs, but I, I, I know she definitely had a uh, a lot of work uh, as TV. I want to mention Joe Pantoliano. 
This guy is good in everything he does. He is such an original and recognizable actor. I think he's one of those character actors that everyone knows, mm-hmm. you know? And of course, I love him in The Goonies, Francis with his toupee. But there's just something about him. He just, he brings something to every role that he's in. Never, ever be the leading man, you know? Always can be kind of a backup, uh, you know, actor. But I, I like him. I like him a lot. I'm a big fan of his. And I wanted to mention uh, Julianne Moore as well. I think she is an absolutely incredible actress. I've mentioned that before on, on, the, on the podcast. She has an intangible quality about her. Like, she's unbelievably beautiful and talented. And But even in a small role like this, to me, she was just a standout. Like, she's just got all this on-screen charisma. And she had done some TV by this point. But I think this was one of her first movie roles. She really broke out in like 97 with uh, The Lost World and Boogie Nights. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But at this point, she was kind of an unknown. Yeah, there was there was a lot of people in this movie that have little small parts and you're like, oh, look who it is. I mean, now you say that at the time, you're like, OK, I don't know who this is. But yeah, when you were talking about Celia Ward being beautiful, I thought, well, I don't know. An hour from then, you see Julianne Moore and she looks pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. And like you said, she's she's a fantastic performer and she's, you know, won numerous awards. So, you know, it's always uh, it's always nice when someone has, you know, the whole package and she certainly seems to be the whole package. I want to mention Daniel Roebuck as well. He was Biggs. He was Tom Lee Jones assistant. He kind of looks like David Schwimmer. I don't know if you remember okay. him. I will always know him from he did this made for TV movie about um, about the late night talk shows from the 90s. He played Jay Leno. Oh, yeah, yeah, He had yeah. this huge prosthetic chin. He looked ridiculous in that, I remember. Yeah, he. Uh, I remember him from Lost. His character's name was Arnst, and he blows up because he was playing with the dynamite, and then parts of his body were on all the other people. And oh, like, it was you Hurley. Have, you, Hurley was yeah, like, yeah, you've got you some Arnst on you. Arnst on Yeah, that. that's right. Yeah. And I, then uh, Rob Zombie, just in the last couple of years, did a remake, a reimagining of the Munsters as a movie, and okay. that guy plays the Grandpa Munster in that remake and I it was so bad I couldn't watch more than five minutes of it but right. uh, yeah he is the definition of a working actor he oh, has yeah. done a ton of stuff and he's consistently working like yep. probably not known by most people you know in mainstream audiences but I don't even think he would qualify as one of those like oh I know that guy he's not even one of them he just works 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 kind of under the radar you know um so you mentioned a lot of people were in this that you kind of recognize Jane Lynch was one that stand, stood out to me yes another one who was just like oh my god look who it is yeah but- she was probably cast in the movie because it was shot in Chicago right so they would have hired like local Chicago actors and she was with the Steppenwolf Theater Company and she also made the main stage of Second City back then she was amazing in The 40-Year-Old Virgin and also as Sue Sylvester in Glee. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but she was I didn't. outstanding I, in that show. God, I remember good. she had a small part in um, Best in Show. Oh, yeah. She was great. That's, that that was where yeah. I remember sort of first seeing yeah. her and then going back years later and watching The Fugitive. And I'm like, oh, look who it is. But yeah. L. Scott Caldwell. You're probably like, who's that? She, I, was, I she played Poole. She was the deputy U.S. marshal. That worked with Tommy. Oh Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recognize her because she was in Lost too. I don't know if you remember. She yeah. played Rose. Yeah. Remember, she yeah. was married to Bernard. Yeah. Bernard, of course, was Sam Anderson. I oh, mean, I loved him. <clears throat> he was Mason Noble 
in WKRP. And he was on this episode of Friends where he played a doctor that really liked Fonzie. I don't know if you ever saw that or know of it, but I but I recognized it. her from Lost. I was I was a big show, fan of that sh- that show too. You liked that show a lot too. Oh yeah, for sure. One of the few shows I liked that came out after the '80s that I still enjoyed. But uh, anyway, so so the so the the opening of the film I want to talk about because like like, like I said, like I, I this is the only part of the movie I had seen before. I really was impressed with the with the direction and the pace of the film as it unfolds in the opening. Because it's all flashbacks to earlier in the evening when the murder happens. And and then like before, you know, at the gala and how it all pieces together. And it's perfect because Kimball gets arrested and in his mind, he's piecing everything together frantically. Like mm-hmm. It's just so well done. Like I was hooked right from the get go in this movie. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, and that's one of the things that we were talking about that I, I felt really was strong about this movie is. The way that the movie is put together, the way that the the editing comes together and how the movie makers are clearly having fun with it, because a lot of this movie, you get like these redirects where as the audience, you think one thing is happening and then it doesn't happen that way. And you realize, oh, it was something else, which is just as important. But, you know, it's constantly forcing you to to check your expectations at the door and be like, OK, let me just let me just watch this movie and see where it goes instead of trying to get ahead of the script and uh and at the beginning of the movie uh I, I to your point i think if this movie had been told in a linear way where we had started with the party and then we had seen the murder like actual scenes drawn out and then we saw the court case and then you know and then we didn't get Wouldn't to the, be bus, the, the bus crash yeah. until 45 minutes yeah. in like by then it's a different movie you've wasted yeah. all that stuff at the beginning all that time at the beginning for a setup that as they showed you here you can do it in 10 minutes and you're like okay now for the rest of the two hours the movie's called The Fugitive. Let's get him into prison and out of prison so that we can start the chase. I even like that interrogation scene at the beginning because they shot it in a, in a unique way. They they didn't have any lines in the script for Harrison Ford to say. It, in fact, they didn't even give him the questions that the cops were going to ask him. They just started asking him questions and then he improvised his answers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so it gave it more of like a, a realistic sort of sense of like confusion like that he was all flustered and stuff like that it really worked yeah totally did and uh and and the only thing that was in that interrogation that stood out to me i thought it was kind of weird when he says the man had a mechanical arm and the cops like well what color were his eyes what color was his hair and i'm thinking he had a mechanical arm like eye color and hair color aren't the most important physical attribute at this point. Like, just go look for the guy with the fake arm. Like, I don't know why they were asking those questions. It seemed a little odd, but. Well, uh, yeah, what I always got out of that was, and this is one of the things that I sort of really thought aged well as I was watching again today is they really make these cops out to be dumb. Mm -hmm. Like, here are these old, white, privileged cops who've clearly been in the job a long time. And I'm sure there are some aspects of their job they're really good at, but you really start to see how these guys are phoning it in. And the movie just goes to show that Harrison Ford, as an escaped convict on the run, wanted by all these people in a very short period of time, doing some very straightforward detective work, is able to find the guy that that killed his wife. I mean, it takes a little bit longer for him to put the pieces together to prove it, but the cops had just done their job at the outset. And uh, and the so marshals it, too, because at the beginning, the, like Tommy Lee Jones really comes off as being very smart. Like he's really good at his job. But then at one point, I think he was talking to Nichols and Nichols is like, Kimball's smart. He's way smarter than you. 
And Tommy Lee Jones is like, you think he's smarter than me? And then I started to realize, I think he is. <laughs> I think he is actually smarter than the Marshal too. So let me, let me stop you with that scene. So mm-hmm. my wife and I watched that scene and then after it was over, I paused and I said, you want to know what I think that you might have to get the censors bleeps here ready. So I said, you want to know how I believe the director directed this scene? She goes, how? I said, what, what, uh, the doctor said was Richard smarter than you, but what the director told the actors to think he said was Richard has a bigger than you. And, and if you think of it that way and watch their reactions where they're like, well, yeah, hey, I'm a smart guy. I'm a pretty smart guy. But if you imagine that was the question that was asked and that was how they were asked to play it out, the scene works perfectly. <laughs> so the next time you watch that scene, just just think about that. <laughs> the things they'll do to motivate their actors. I yep. tell you, you know, just yep. criticize their penis size and then you yep. watch them go. So the, the bus scene, which is probably one of the most famous scenes of the movie. So he first gets on the bus and he's surrounded by all these violent criminals. And it made me think like, it's funny, like not very often do I watch a film and kind of get lost in the movie a little bit. But in that scene, I did because I was thinking like, what must it be like to be a professional, an innocent man? And suddenly you're thrown into this situation where like you're wrongly accused of murder and he's sentenced to death and they put him on this bus with all these hardened criminals that would be brutal, you know, like yeah. almost as bad as having to watch some of the movies Yancey made me watch back in the day, like that bad. Like, I, I just thought like, oh my God, this would have been terrible. Like what a feeling. And I feel like Harrison Ford kind of conveys that in the moment, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think that really, he does a good job of it. And that really helps you buy into his desperation when it's like, okay, you now have this opportunity to flee. And of course, your instinct as someone who is on death row and about to be sent to their to their death, of course you're going to flee. But he realizes, like, I have nothing to lose. Even when the, he's on the phone with the lawyer and the lawyer's like, you should turn yourself in. And he's like, I'm not turning myself in. To do what? I'm going to turn myself in to go to jail and get killed, like, by lethal injection? Like, his desperation in the movie is clear. And he takes risks, uh, you know, like, and they even talk about it in the one scene where they're like, why would he go to a hospital full of cops when everybody is already looking for him? Why would he go to a, a prison to see an inmate when it's full of police officers and law enforcement officers? It's like he's desperate. He is capital D desperate. He absolutely needs to put this puzzle together and solve it or he's going back to jail and going to be executed. He has literally nothing left to lose. So I think that scene at the beginning really, if that doesn't work, if you don't buy into his absolute desperation that I am in a situation that I have absolutely no control over and this is it, then the rest of the movie doesn't work as well. So I think, I think you're right. I think he, he does a great job of conveying that, uh, that, that desperation. But even in the moment when the, when the bus crash happens, everybody bails, he's the one that stays and helps the cop that's hurt. Right. Cause, cause he's a doctor. Like that's, it's like almost like his instinct to help, Yeah, you know, which was so cool. And that crash, like we mentioned was so crazy. So I think a lot of movies don't hold up after 30 years, obviously this one absolutely does. I thought, Oh yeah. Oh my yeah. God. And now, yeah, it does. It does. Uh, but there are obviously, there are some points in it are dated simply because of the years in which it was shot. And it's hard to watch it today and think, 
well, if this happened today, what would happen? And that's what we kept saying. Like, you couldn't make this story happen today because so much of so much of the world is covered by cameras that he wouldn't be able to do half the things they say. And so to watch this movie, even and, even then, there was multiple scenes where they had him on camera, like yeah. walking into places and stuff. So, but the 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 absence of mobile phones, the absence of the mm-hmm. internet to look up, like he had to physically read books and go to a hospital to look up a a database that was stored in the hospital and put himself at risk. Like these kinds of things wouldn't necessarily be a problem to the same extent if they happened today. So in some cases, this kind of a movie could only happen in the nineties because a little bit earlier, certain things wouldn't be available and a little later, certain other things would be available. So I I don't think it hurts the movie at all, but I do think it it sort of is like a time capsule. The movie, Mm -hmm. you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you go back and watch this movie. If if you if I didn't tell you it was from the mid 90s, there's enough here where you could say, well, the absence of cell phones and Internet tells me it's at the er, at the latest mid 90s. But the absence of, or, you know, the presence of other things tells me that it's, you know, past the 80s. So but I, I don't have a problem. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it does really lock it into that you know, sort of early nineties time frame. So in that scene, when he gets out of the, uh, out of the bus crash and he goes down and he goes to the river, I always love that old movie trope where the fugitive always goes to the river. Mm-hmm. I remember watching this old documentary show on Canadian TV. It was, it was on TVO. It was, there was a show called inquiring minds. And I remember they did a piece on why fugitives always go to the river because mm-hmm. they were explaining how, you know, you have scent molecules the human beings would just create them and they actually will go through the rubber of your shoe soles and deposit on the ground. That's what a bloodhound can pick up. Like it's mm. hard to believe this, that your sweat can like somehow permeate that rubber, but it does. And very little of it obviously gets through, but enough for a bloodhound to pick up. And I guess by wading through a river, the scent molecules that are washed downstream but even still, bloodhounds' noses are so good, they can still usually follow you across the river. Like, it's just crazy, crazy. But um, I also want to mention, like, when we talk about the special effects, when he pulls his shirt off and you see that wound, I actually winced in that scene. Like, usually in movies when you see wounds, like, it's like it's bloody, but they usually look pretty fake. I thought yeah. it looked really real, and especially on high-def TV that I was watching it on, like, it... I don't know. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah, it's uh, again, I think if it doesn't look convincing, then you don't believe that he's really in any dire straits. Like he's it's got to look bad enough that he needs to risk going to a hospital to find the medical supplies. And that was another thing that we thought sort of dated a little bit was the fact that he could just walk into the hospital and he was go, able to go into a treatment room and all the drugs were there. They weren't locked up. He was able to just take what he wanted. I mean, right. if you watch any medical show today, you know, everything's under lock and key. Everything needs a code or a key. It's usually only the head of a department that has those things. So, again, it, it's not a knock on the movie, but it's just an indication of the time period in which the movie was shot, that those things could happen at that time. And the, the writers of this movie took advantage of those things. Uh, one thing I really liked was how the marshals are literally like right on his tail, right from mm-hmm. the get go. Like he mm-hmm. has zero breathing room. You know, I thought I thought that was really cool because that really set the pace of the film early on. It was good. And it gets to that the damn uh, tunnel scene, probably along with the train crash, probably the most famous scene in the movie. Oh, yeah. 
I love how Ford gets his gun, but he doesn't shoot him. He just says, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) Which is probably the most famous line in the movie. But he improvised that line because the script actually called for him to say, that's not my problem. Hmm. So what do you think of that line? I don't care because it becomes a pivotal part of the film. Yeah, I think, uh, no, I love it. And I think it, it's right up there within um, Empire Strikes Back where she says, I love you. And he's like, I know. It's just that it's, he just seems more realistic. Yeah. That the I don't care is the more realistic response from someone in his position. Um, and it works. I think it works really well. And so speaking of that, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned now that a couple of scenes were improv and, and lines mm-hmm. were tweaked and stuff. So one of the things I do remember reading about the trivia of this movie is, that the script wasn't 100% finalized when they started shooting it, and they were constantly doing rewrites, like, on the go, including the ending of the movie, which, from what I understand, was not fully wrapped up. They didn't know how they are going to end the movie when they started shooting it, but things like those the train crash scene required so much coordination that they're like, we got to get started on this thing. There's just too many moving pieces, and it's going to cost us too much to not get started. So it doesn't surprise me to learn that a lot of scenes were either improvised or that they gave the actors some freedom to, to, to do their thing. And I think that again, speaks to the ability of, of the main stars in Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. Like if you have lesser performers that don't, don't have that guidance, then they're going to struggle a little bit more, but these guys are pros and man, do they, they really knock it out of the park. I want to mention, I love how it's shot in Chicago Uh, and they show off the city a lot in this. Derek, have you ever been to Chicago? Yeah, a couple of times. I have some family there. Nice. I love that city. I used to travel there on business all the time. I've probably been at least a dozen times. It's such a great place. I, I used to have a friend that worked at the Art Institute of Chicago, and she would take me in there and show me everything. It, that, that was amazing. I love the loop downtown. And Lakeshore Boulevard always remind me of the Lakeshore in Toronto, too. Mm-hmm. There's the House of Blues. There's Harry Curry Steakhouse, the elevated trains, and, of course, Second City. You know, I I used to always go to the main stage show at Second City every time I went there. But I, I've always been a big fan of Chicago. It's an awesome place. Um, th- there was a couple of red herrings in this movie. You kind of touched base on that. Um, there was one when they, they get a tip that there's like an escapee at a house with a woman. And they go there and it's the black prisoner that escaped with them. Yeah. And of I, course, the, the setup to that is you see Harrison mm-hmm. Ford is basically picked up by a kind-hearted woman who's like, hey, do you need a ride? And then the very next scene, they go, okay, we got him. He, The woman picked him up last night, and you're like, oh, Harrison Ford about to get caught. And then, of course, it's not. It's a, it's a misdirect. It's a red herring, but I felt it was unnecessary. And they could have deleted that scene, and it wouldn't have affected the film at all, and it, it, it might have even helped with the runtime. I thought that was, I don't know, I just felt like that was unnecessary. Well, no, but I, so I liked it because... Up until that point, I honestly, most times I watch it, I forget about that criminal. He's escaped and Mm -hmm. he says, I don't care where you go, just don't follow me. And that's the end of it. And I love that halfway through the movie, they insert this scene and and you realize, oh, these marshals are tracking all the escaped fugitives from the bus, not just Harrison Ford. We, we, the audience, are just not seeing the detective work behind the scenes on capturing this other guy. And my, my... interpretation of that is always that the other guy is is a career criminal like he's he's legitimately a criminal that's supposed to be in prison so he's probably doing things that are a little more predictable whereas richard kimball is 
not guilty, not a criminal, highly educated. So his his actions are more unpredictable because he's you know he doesn't have that criminal mind, so to speak. Um, and so it's making them harder to catch. So the fact that halfway through they they show you what happened to the other guy, you're like, oh yeah, the other guy. And then boom, they end up having to kill him. And it's like, okay, well, we're done with that. Now let's go back to the Harrison Ford part of the story. There was another red herring too when when he takes that seedy apartment and the cops show up, but they're actually yeah. just busting the landlord's son. And yeah. I, again, I thought the same thing. I thought it didn't really need to be in there in in, in the plot, but... Uh, um, I, one other thing, a, a scene that stood out to me, I'm just thinking of when, when um, Tommy Lee Jones spots him at the hospital and he chases him out through Daly Plaza and they go into the St. Patrick's Day Parade. They actually shot that during the St. Patrick's Day yeah. Parade. Like they didn't like re- recreate it or anything. They just, okay, walk around there and we'll just shoot it kind of thing, which is kind of interesting. Maybe to your point, like how they had to kind of get all that stuff done because of some of the other scenes, you know, pulling them back. Um, I really liked how... Kimball broke into the one-armed man's apartment and calls Tommy Lee Jones and just leaves the phone off the hook so they can trace it. And then they, they go and show up and then they find all the evidence. So I thought, I thought that was pretty clever. Mm-hmm. I thought, and when he was doing it, I'm like, what's he doing? Like, uh, and then I was like, oh my God, he's smart. Like, I thought that was pretty cool. And yeah. I want to mention the actor that played the one-armed man. Yeah. He, he looked a lot like my father-in-law. So I disliked him right away. <laughs> I hope my family doesn't listen. I was going to say, podcast. does your father-in-law have one arm? <laughs> no. If if my if, if any of my family is listening, I'm just kidding. I love my father-in-law. He's wonderful. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sorry, does your father-in-law have one arm? Uh, no, no, he does not. I, I only ask because my grandfather legit only had one arm. He oh. lost he lost his arm as a young man in a railroad accident. So. Whenever they talk, people talk about, oh, the one-armed man, the one-armed man. I'm like, I knew one-armed man. My grandpa yeah. only had one arm. But my grandpa did, didn't wasn't involved in anything like this guy was. This guy was bad, no. you know. And then, um, and then um, the other part that the the plot that I thought was interesting was how when Kimball goes back and sees Jane Lynch again, and they find out that all the samples were fudged, and he was like, yeah. it was Nichols. It was nickels behind this the whole time because they're trying to get that pharmaceutical drug, you know, to market because they can all make a lot of money and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they were there to kill Kimball. Not, his wife just got in the way. You know, it was just an unfortunate yeah. thing, you know. Um, but then I thought it was interesting because Tommy Lee Jones starts to see all the facts. And it yeah. makes his line that he improvised, I don't care. It makes that line more important because he starts to care. Even though that's not his job, he starts to like, hey, wait a minute, maybe this guy is innocent, you know? And then when it's all done, I thought Tommy Lee Jones gives another amazing line when he's like, I'm glad it's over. I need the rest. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing for me was like the way he delivered that line was just perfect. I think a lesser actor would have like played that line up, you know, trying to get a laugh mm-hmm. out of it. But Tommy Lee Jones just delivers a deadpan. And his delivery is so good. Like, it was just, oh my gosh. As, as an actor myself, like, I was just I was so good. I don't know how many takes it took to get it or if they just did it in one try, but, like, just his delivery was phenomenal in that. And then, of course, at the end, he's like, I thought you didn't care. And he's like, don't tell anyone, all right? <laughs> so, again, it brings that line full circle. So, they, I think you're right. They obviously were kind of working the script, you know, as they were shooting it. Yeah. So... I don't know. Overall, I was really, really impressed. And I was I was happy to discover that I hadn't seen it before 
because I was discovering it for the first time and it was great and I really, really enjoyed it. Do you want to give it a rating out of 10 for me? Uh, I'd give it a eight and a half or a nine, probably nine. I like this one a lot. I've seen it a lot. I think it holds up well. I, I really enjoyed rewatching it again this week, even though I've probably seen it four times already since Christmas. Um, I like it. I'm giving it a nine to 10. My instinct is eight and a half. And that's where I was going to go. Got to where you started. So I'm going to go with eight and a half for sure. So nice. Yeah, no, this no. is a solid pick. I'm glad I, we had a chance to go fantastic. back and visit it. Really, really good choice this week, my friend. All right, let's have some. Fun with Caveman. Okay, we are going to play a game that I like to call Pick the Flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. Okay, so the common thread, we usually like to have a common thread with all Mm -hmm. of our movies. I'm going to give you the year, the synopsis, you name the movie. And the common thread is these are all movies that are based on TV shows. Oh, boy. Pretty straightforward stuff here, Derek. I think you're going to do well. Yeah, well, I don't know. You say that, but this does not sound like it's something I'm going to excel at. I've got quite a few of them here, so I'm sure you're going to do well. Okay, 2012. It's newer. Sorry, this is the year of the movie or this is the year of the TV show? Near year of the movie, 2012. A pair of underachieving cops are sent back to a local high school to blend in and bring down a synthetic drug ring. 21 Jump Street. 2010, a group of Iraq war veterans look to clear their name with the U.S. military who suspect the four men of committing a crime for which they were framed. Uh, We already talked about this one on this show. That would be the A-team. See, Derek, you're doing just great. Yeah, these are wonderful. So far, so good. 1991. Con artists plan to fleece an eccentric family using an accomplice who claims to be their long-lost uncle. Oh, um, was that uh, the Adams family? 2006. A Kazakh TV talking head is dispatched to the United States to report on the greatest country in the world. With the documentary crew in tow, he becomes more interested in locating and marrying Pamela Anderson. Yeah, it's, uh, I can't remember the full title, but it's Borat. Funny, I was going to ask you for the full title. Want to take a stab at it? No, it was like, no, it's something, no, honestly, I'm going to, I have no idea. It's Borat. Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. There you go. How'd you not get that? Okay. 2007, three musical rodents are discovered by an aspiring songwriter who wants to use their amazing singing abilities to become famous. Wow. Oh, was that the stupid Josie and the Pussycats? They were not rodents. No, it was Alvin and the Chipmunks. I thought you said roadies. No, rodents. (laughs) Rodies. Okay. No, No. Uh, okay, 1966. We're going way back for this one, okay? The dynamic duo face four supervillains who plan to hold the world for ransom with the help of a secret invention that instantly dehydrates people. Uh, was that na 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 Batman? 
I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. It's Batman the movie. Batman the movie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 2005. Thinking he can overshadow an unknown actress in the part, an egocentric actor unknowingly gets a witch cast in an upcoming television remake of a classic sitcom. Yeah, that's uh, Bewitched. Okay, 1995. The original 1970s TV family is now placed in the 90s, where they're even more square and out of place than ever. Oh, that was, uh, oh, was it, was it called a very Brady movie? No, it was the Brady Bunch movie. It was the very, the Brady Bunch movie is correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 2000, three women detectives with a mysterious boss retrieve stolen voice ID software using martial arts, tech skills, and sex appeal. Uh, that would be Charlie's Angels. 1987, the equally straight-laced and by-the-book nephew of Joe Friday must work with his more laid-back partner to solve a mystery. Uh, um, uh, crap. Dragnet. See, you're doing I could picture well. the I could picture the cover box. It's yellow. It's got yep. Dan Aykroyd, Tom Hanks. And I couldn't. That's the one. It's got the their title. badge. Okay. Yeah. 1994. In a parallel modern day Stone Age world, a working class family are set up for an executive job, but they learn that money can't buy happiness. Was that the Flintstones? All right. 1980. Maxwell Smart is recalled to duty to help fight a villain who threatens to detonate a weapon that destroys clothing. Uh, well, I, it was, I think I it's just called this movie. Was I it called it. just get smart? No, it was the nude bomb. The nude okay. bomb. I love, love that movie. It was so good. Okay. 1999, a security guard's dreams come true when he is selected to be transformed into a cybernetic police officer. Wow. This is based on a TV show. Yes. Cybernetic police officer. I know I'm going to be like, I can't believe I got this wrong, but I have no idea. It was a Canadian TV show at that, and it was animated. The, the TV show was. It was Inspector Gadget. Oh, yeah. Okay, and the last one, 2009. This movie never should have been made. 2009, A Space-Time Vortex. Sucks scientist Rick Marshall, his assistant Holly, and a survivalist Will into a world populated by dinosaurs and painfully slow creatures called Sleestacks. Was that uh, The Land of the Lost? So I, I've never seen this film, but I, it, he, they're saying his assistant Holly and a survivalist Will. See, in the original, it was like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And they were his kids. Okay. And this one, it looks like they just changed it. Like, why did they ever make this movie? God, it's so stupid. Don't all right. So I you honestly, did, you did I, I had well. not, I did not seen most of those movies. So yeah, but you, I, you know, all of them, they're based on TV. Yeah. Shows. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I got my kid a couple of years ago to watch land of the lost. The one from the seventies that I grew up with the TV show. Yeah. And he actually liked it. 
He was like, oh, this is really good, Daddy. I'm like, you know it is, man. It's so good. <laughs> so anyways, you did really well. You did good, most of them anyway. So so uh, next time out, we'll have to figure out what we're going to do. Maybe we'll do a topic. Maybe we'll do another movie review. We'll have to wait and see. We'll figure that out. Yep. But until then, this is Chris O'Brien on behalf of myself and Derek Myers saying, thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.